If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 130 of the Leading Learning Podcast. In this episode, we talk with Heather McGowan about the intersection of the future of work and the future of learning. Heather is, in our opinion, one of the leading voices on this topic, and we know that leading learning listeners are going to find her perspective very valuable. But before diving into that conversation with Heather, we want to acknowledge our sponsor for the second quarter of 2018. Our sponsor this quarter is Review My LMS, a collaboration between our company, Tagoras, and 100 Reviews, the company that's behind the very successful Review My AMS site. As the name suggests, Review My LMS is a site where users can share and access reviews of learning management systems. But in this case, the focus is specifically on systems that are a good fit for learning businesses, meaning organizations that market and sell lifelong learning. Contribute to a review and you will get access to all existing reviews and future reviews. There are already more than 100 reviews on the site. And if you don't have a review to contribute, there's also a subscription option. Just go to ReviewMyLMS.com to get all the details. For our resource for this episode, we thought a good compliment to the interview with Heather McGowan would be our own brief take on 10 critical shifts in the market for lifelong learning. In that resource, we highlight 10 trends that are impacting and will continue to impact the landscape for learning businesses. To download the Critical Shifts document, just visit the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 130. Now, Jeff, I know Heather McGowan has a lot to say about how the need and demand for learning are changing. Definitely. Heather is someone who's just really completely absorbed in the question of how work is changing and how that's changing the role of learning in our lives. And it's a topic she's written and and spoken about extensively, and she's starting to attract a significant audience to her work. People like Thomas Friedman, for example, the very well-known New York Times columnist and best-selling author, mentions her frequently. So we're thrilled that she was able to make time to share her thoughts on the Leading Learning podcast. And I won't give away too much of the interview here, but I'll say that we start off by talking about why the type of change we're going through right now is so different from what past generations have experienced. And then we roll from there into a great discussion about the future of work and learning. One related note that I want to make before we roll into the interview, though, is that Heather's background is actually in design. And one of the really compelling aspects of her work is the visuals that she creates to illustrate her points. You know, we can't convey those in an audio podcast, obviously, so I really do encourage listeners to click through to the show notes for this episode. Again, that's leadinglearning.com slash episode 130, where we'll have some examples of the visuals and we'll also provide links to other visuals and to uh, Heather's work in general. Well, great. I really look forward to this conversation. So let's now roll the interview with Heather McGowan. Hey out there, I'm Jeff Cobb, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Heather McGowan. 
Heather is someone who, I, I must confess, I, I find it challenging to introduce in a way that's really going to do her and her work justice. She's someone who does an amazing job of gathering and synthesizing a diverse range of ideas around the topics of work and learning, and then making them truly digestible and impactful for the average person. And I first became aware of her when Thomas Friedman mentioned her in one of his columns in the New York Times, and I immediately found and read all of the articles that she had posted on LinkedIn, where I should mention she was a 2017 top voice. Heather is an internationally known speaker, a writer, a thought leader in the truest sense, and an advisor to leaders in the corporate and academic world. And she's here today to share her insights with leading learning listeners. Heather, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I look forward to our discussion today. Well, I'm really looking forward to it. And I I only scratched the surface with the introduction that I just gave. So would you tell listeners just a bit more about what you do and perhaps more importantly, why you do it? My career is is not a ladder, but a a web. And I think that I may be on the, the front edge of the future work because this may be true for more people. Going forward, I stumbled into what I do. I have an undergrad degree in industrial design, which is basically design thinking and design strategy, and an MBA with a concentration in entrepreneurship. So I've been academically trained to synthesize a lot of information and solve problems, but not only solve problems, look for problems and frame them, and then also trained to figure out how do you scale those solutions to create sustainable value. And I think that's the heart and soul of the future work. It just happened to be my academic path. And my professional path has gone from designing baby products and medical products to working in financial services to accidentally finding my way into academia. So I found my way into this by accident. I had some people who crossed my path who said, you seem to understand uh, a synthetic arc here that I think p- other people need to understand, and you have a way of presenting things in visuals that make complexity crystal clear so people understand how to move forward. And so it, it's really hard to explain what I do, and my mother always struggles with it. She says, how do I introduce you to my friends? I don't know what you do. So you're not alone, Jeff, in uh, trying <laughs> to capture it. Um, I just don't think we have words yet for a lot of what, what many of us will be doing in the future, and it's a lot of sense-making. Well, that, that's that's funny. Uh, I think we're fellow travelers in many ways because I feel like I came to where I am accidentally, and I also have a, a lot of trouble getting my mother to uh, understand exactly what, what it is I do in life. Um, so, and, and one thing I want to get at is uh, how you take complex ideas and, and simplify them. Um, but before we even get there, it seems like, I mean, really at the heart of your work is just the, the fact that we're going through a, a huge amount of change right now, or it feels like a, a huge amount of change. And I, I do sometimes wonder, though, we, we, we characterize ourselves as living in this, uh, this age of just tremendous change, fast change. Um, but I, I'd like your perspective. I mean, what, what's different now? I mean, arguably, every generation has lived with a lot of change. What's, what's, what's new now, and what do we, why do we need to be more concerned about it than in the past? I think what's different this time is the speed of what's happened and, more importantly, the speed of what's going to happen. A lot of people refer to what we're moving through as moving from linear to exponential change. So previous generations would have one or two paradigm shifts that would last in a 100-year increment so that when life expectancy was 30 or 40 years old, you had maybe one paradigm shift in your lifetime that you had to absorb, we're now looking at three, four, or five paradigm shifts that may take place in a single generation, in a time when we're living much longer. And so we're going to have to 
cycle through a lot more changes in what is now a much longer career arc. So some of the things I point to is, you know, the iPhone is now just over 10 years old. And look how much that's changed our lives from how we hail a taxi to how we reserve a room to how we pay for things and how companies have become platforms. That one device, now look at what are going to be the next versions of that. And the difference between linear and exponential change, the best way I've heard it described is if you look at 30 meters and if you took 30 steps, you'd be about 30 meters. If That's 30 linear steps. If you took 30 exponential steps, do you have any idea how far you'd be? I, I'm not good enough in math to even come close to guessing okay. that. <laughs> in exponential steps, each step is double the prior step. So instead of going 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, you go to 1, 2, 4, 8, 16. 30 exponential steps is 27 times around the globe. Mm. And the 26th step is equal to all the prior steps. So as we're moving from you know, two to four to eight, we're starting to feel a lot more of that change right now. And I think that the iPhone and mobile technology or, you know, smartphones and all the pieces that came together to make those disruptions possible help us feel that whether we're at four or eight or 16, I'm not sure, the the speed of change that's beginning to happen. And, and so in the, in the, the midst of that change, I know at the heart of your work is the idea that uh, because of that, I mean, work is is really changing. Um, you know, you've gone so far as to say that the jobs are basically over. That you know, to, to talk about a job is kind of irrelevant uh, at, at this point. So, can you can you talk a little bit more about how you are seeing how, how you've already seen, I guess, the nature of work change and what we can expect uh, going forward? You know, in the next decade and, and longer. Yeah. So if you look at a job, a job is a container of skills and knowledge. And our education system was designed like a factory pipeline where we codify and transfer a set of predetermined skills and existing knowledge into an individual to create a deployable workforce. And whatever it was we codified and transferred was for the large part sufficient to last what was your 20 or 30 year career arc. You left uh, university or if you didn't go to university, you left whatever post high school training you had, and you stepped on some sort of career ladder, and you rode your way up, you acquired some knowledge on, on the job on the way up, but largely you relied on that single dose of education. Now, um, we're looking at um, trying to get people to do things they've, that have never been done before. So the idea of codifying and transferring something to, to do a job that never existed before is really rocking our whole system of education. So how do you hire someone to be a cybersecurity person? How did you hire the first cybersecurity person? How did you hire the first social media manager? Look at what we're going through with when we're really digging into what happened at Facebook with Cambridge Analytica. We don't have sufficient trained workforce for cyber warfare. We don't have a trained enough populace to be responsible enough in voting with the amount of fake news and cyber attacks that are taking place. So it's really not only rocking work, it's rocking our society. Mm. And you, you've, uh, I guess I would characterize it as sort of the antidote to this, or at least the, the, the approach to this that's needed as embracing the, the concept of, of learning uncertainty. Can you talk about that a, a little bit, of, you know, what, what that involves? Sure. We've always defined ourselves by what we did. I mean, if we look back several generations, our last names were our occupation, Baker, Carpenter, etc. That was so much part of our identity. So we ask little kids, we still do it today, and I think it's incredibly troublesome. We ask little kids what they want to be when they grow up. We ask uh, a student in university, even before they've started what their major is, 
We've asked many students to apply into a major, so they're accepted to study something they probably have never been exposed to. Um, to consume content that may be irrelevant by the time they graduate, when the debt's not going to be. And then when we speak to each other, the first thing we ask when we started the conversation this way is, what do you do? And that allows us to classify people into buckets and understand how to relate to each other. But along the way, it cements and calcifies an identity around the applications of skills and knowledge at a moment in time. So when we, we're looking at things changing very quickly and people having to adapt to whether it be rising technological capability, um, a hyper and inter, interconnected and interdependent global society, the atomization of work, work breaking down into job fragments that can be done anywhere around the world, just all the ways that work is changing we're still holding that identity that's getting in our way so that um, it's now believed that if you lose your job, um, you're going to go through a greater psychological um, challenge than if you lost your primary relationship mm. because it was the end of your identity. So I think one of the first things we need to do is come up with better questions about how we really ask people about what their purpose is, what their passion is, what they think their skills are, what do they think they're good at, and how it could be applied in a number of different ways. Because if we can tap into that passion and purpose, that's what's going to keep the lifelong learning candle lit, and we need to keep that lit. And so... I mean, if you're somebody who's at the, at the beginning of your career, maybe, I mean, maybe you haven't even finished your education yet. So, I mean, it sounds like, you know, first of all, you need to be asking yourself those questions and hopefully you're surrounded by people who are going to be asking those types of, of questions rather than the, the more traditional approach. But I mean, what else should you be doing to, to prepare for learning uncertainty? And I, and, and I guess I'll add to that does college even matter anymore? You know, is, is traditional higher education even the, the, the right path anymore? I think traditional, I'll answer your last question first. I think traditional higher education has a place. There's a certain amount of um, social development that takes place. It may not be the, it's certainly not the most cost effective way of doing it, mm. but there is a role from going from a dependent human to an independent human. And that is really a lot of what college is about. Right. And also college or university, depending on, you know, if you're overseas, university is in college or different things. But Part of it is, is understanding who you are in the world. Part of it is understanding um, how you want to be an independent person, how you want to contribute to society, what your skills and capabilities are. But we've become so frozen on kind of capturing those for that first job, which is becoming increasingly ridiculous when you realize the debt's going to last 30 years and the first job may last 18 months. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if you're going to have, you know, the Foundation for Young Australians says that you're going to have 16, 17 different jobs across five different, completely different industries, narrowing somebody into that, that pinpoint of a single job and a single career and a single identity is incredibly dangerous. So I think higher ed has a role for a lot of reasons. I think the way that we've packaged it as a very expensive four-year residential model may not be the solution, but I think we have all these academic institutions that need to reinvent themselves more like gym memberships. Mm. Something that you belong to. If you belong to a gym to keep your body in shape, will have some relationship with some type of learning institution. Some of it will be within the organization. Some of it will be external, where we have a lifelong relationship so that your education never really ends. I usually use the word learning instead of education because education seems to have an end point, that state of being educated. Okay, right. that's and that thir- first third of my life is over now I'm a professional, whereas learning tends to be continuous. 
Right. So how do you get yourself ready for that learning um, uncertainty is to acknowledge a more fluid and flexible identity. So here, you know, I am I can introduce myself by saying I'm good at synthesizing a lot of information and crystallizing it into visuals that help people understand change that's taking place and helps people walk through that change process. So I do it in strategic visioning. I do it in keynote talks. Um, I do it in high-level consultation for university presidents or corporate leaders. But that leaves you kind of open to me having a whole bunch of different jobs by taking that sort of that zero and that's one of my key skill sets. Mm-hmm. I know on a team that I'm fine talking to you and I have no problem talking to hundreds of people, if, that, if not thousands of people giving a keynote, but I'm not great at small talk. I'm an introvert. So I need a lot of time alone to absorb a lot of information and kind of noodle it over and draw a lot of pictures and figure out wh- how I explain it. So I, I know that I'm an introvert. I know on a team, I tend to be more quiet. I try to listen to what everybody else says and sort of synthesize it. Those kinds of things that sort of those types of levels of self-awareness are going to be increasingly important because our, our learning is social and work is social. So it's no longer your individual contribution in isolation. It's how can you contribute on a team? And learning that over the last, you know, 20 some odd years of my career, 25 years of my career, I've learned those things and that have become invaluable. And if we focus more on what are you good at, what do you need help with, what role do you play on a team, how do you learn, how do you express yourself, then you're more adept and positioned to apply in a a variety of uncertain circumstances. And I'd be interested, you know, a lot of our listeners are going to be, um, they may be a trade and professional association, so they have a membership base they're serving, or they may, they may be a training firm, but they're serving a particular field or industry, so trying to, to support the, the workers in that field or industry. I mean, how, how should those organizations, from your perspective, be thinking differently about how they support workers, how they sustain workers uh, throughout their careers. I mean, do they need a different approach to the, the, the whole continuing education, professional development, lifelong learning business that they're in? Yeah, I think they might. I, I know what we need. I'm not sure whose responsibility it is. So I'll mm. throw it out there and we'll figure out whose responsibility is. We need a foundation in something I call an agile learning mindset. So that is the agency to understand that learning is my responsibility um, it's a focus on developing to the best your ability, your uniquely human skills, your ability to communicate, your creativity skills, divergent thinking, empathy, social emotional intelligence, and a real understanding of how businesses create value and how you personally create that value every day in what you do. And that agile learning mindset is foundational. I don't know if it needs to start in K-12, probably does probably more of a Montessori-based, an inquiry-based, a design thinking-based, or some mm-hmm. business models and systems thinking in there. But that was not given to the workforce that's out there. So we can fix it in K-12 and higher ed, but we still have the bulk of our workforce are people who came out of a different system. So how do you give them that sense of self-awareness and agency and helping them develop their uniquely human skills, which undoubtedly they've exercised in their professional career They just haven't realized they have, which brings me to my second point. Learning takes place in work every single day. 
It's not just when you go down the hall to the webinar. It's not just when you go after work and do a MOOC. And it's not just when you have your professional development day. Every day you're solving an exception to a problem. Otherwise, all the work would be automated. So what we need to do is figure out how to capture that learning when it's happening so people acknowledge that it's happening. In the medical community, we have... uh, Post, post-mortems when a patient dies. What went wrong? What did we learn? We don't seem to do that in any other type of work. There are big learning moments that are happening every day and we're not capturing them. So if we can figure out a way to make learning integral to work, and then as we need to teach people skills, that sort of codify and transfer model in uh, micro moments, omni-learning all day long to sort of say, okay, you need to develop more cybersecurity skills, data analytics skills, wh- whatever, they, some other form of digital skills or creative thinking skills or business models, because whatever they may be, that you take codified and transferred chunks of that learning and give it to people in greater increments. So it's not something you go away to do, but it's something you take a piece of it and you apply it every day. So I see learning sort of blowing apart into these tiny fragments that are all around us that we're using all the time. And I think that some of that may be the domain of the academy thinking about itself differently and our relationship to it. It may be the domain of, um, you know, school K-12 education. It may be the domain of um, trade forces and, and, and trade organizations that say, wow, our industry is dramatically changing. We need to think differently about how we create value and how we bring along the people who are members of our trade organization. So I think it's kind of everybody's responsibility, but I know when it's everybody's responsibility, it's nobody's responsibility. So we need to figure out how we cover that landscape I just described through the pieces that exist. Yeah, and you raised an interesting point there that uh, that I've, I've made in a number of situations about the fact that We've got this workforce out there right now that, uh, you know, was trained in the old ways, uh, was educated in the old ways, has the old mindset. And, um, I mean, it seems like a, it's an economic issue. It's a tremendous social issue, uh, that that is the case that we have that many people out there when the economy has shifted so dramatically. And that, that's bound to have implications. In fact, I, I want to go back to, um, to something you referenced uh, towards the, the, the beginning of our conversation here about uh, identity and you know, your identity being wrapped up with the concept of a, of a job and a career. And if that's not so stable anymore, you know, if, you don't, if you don't have the same job, that's going to that's gonna have implications. And, and I, think, I think I've also read in some of what you've uh, written that the, you know, the whole idea of, of mastery becomes a lot more elusive as well. Um, you know, cause you keep, you sort of keep, uh, transforming and, and moving, um, and, and developing, you know, new skills and augmenting. And it's not so much about becoming, you know, a, a deep dive in the world expert in any one thing. Um, I, I'd, I'd love it if you could talk a little bit about, about what those implications are when you, when you no longer have that deep sense of identity around job, when, when something like mastery feels more elusive, how does that play out? How is that playing out in, in society? Um, it's playing out in, in a number of ways, and I don't. Th- I think that is um, – I give one of my talks where I talk about the panic zones. I think that's one of the biggest potential panics out there that we've just begun to feel the beginning of it. So mm. if you look at our largest companies in the United States anyway right now, they are Apple, Google, Amazon. You know, They're all digital companies, and if you look at the median age in those – businesses, it's all 31, 28 to 31 is the median age. Median age in the workforce is 40 plus. Mm-hmm. And the high value zone for an employee used to be 45 to 55 because it was where you had enough education, acquired expertise and gas in the tank 
to lead um, before you were sort of on the back nine. Now, if you look at the, our high value zones, probably 28 wow. <laughs> now in those new economy companies. And so, and then you've got the reality or economic reality that people are realizing they have to live longer. So you have lots of people in the workforce who are older that are not stepping out in the way that we had originally planned them to at 65, 66, 67. So there are younger people now who are not getting into those high value zone slots. So we have lots of pieces not happening in the order in which they should. And the idea of mastery is something that used to be, if you looked at an organization, I say we've moved from complicated to complex. So a complicated um, world or a complicated organization problem breaks down into subcomponents. So it looks very much like a hierarchical model, whether it's how you organize people or how you break down problems. Now we're looking at a complex world that's globally interdependent with uh, biological and non-biological intelligence working together, transdisciplinarity as a norm, and problems are compl- complex, so they're interlocking, so they, they don't break down as easily. So a concrete example of that is if you were a leader in an organization 10, 15 years ago, chances are good you had the majority of the experience of everybody you managed. You'd sat in all the chairs they'd sat in. You might have mm. skipped a couple of chairs. So when it came to making a decision, you probably had enough of their knowledge. You got their input from from later things coming out, but you probably you had most of the field covered and you could make a decision with some level of certainty. And that certainty gave you a certain confidence in your identity. Now we're looking at people in the organization who have skills and knowledge, whether it be cyber or data or digital skills, that you may not have And you have to think differently about how you make decisions. You have to defer to people who report to you and refer to their expertise. And that is a part of a shift in identity. And it's a shift in decision-making and it's a shift in organizational structures. Man, I think it's a shift we're going to see, as, as you suggested, playing, playing out for many years. We're, we're just at the beginning uh, of that. Uh, and that, you mentioned you know, certainty versus complexity there. Uh, you deal with complexity, obviously, and, and pulling together all of these different ideas. You're kind of walking the walk of learning uncertainty and, and trying to make things clearer for the people that you're writing for, speaking to. You're very visual in, in how you do that. In fact, that, that really struck me when I, when I did you know, go and find your, your work. You just have these great visuals all throughout, which I know is you know, coming from your background as a designer. Can, can you talk a little bit more about kind of your personal process? I mean, how do you, how do you gather information? How do you connect the dots? And you know, does, it just, does it come to you? Do you think visually? Or do you have to synthesize it into that visual? Just uh, tell us a little bit more about how, you, how you're able to boil things down. Um, sometimes it's a really frustrating process. I'll be reading things and talking to people for many weeks, and all of a sudden I feel like I feel like I'm doing nothing. I'm not getting anywhere. And then all of a sudden, it's usually right before I have to be somewhere, right after I've walked my dog, gone for a swim, or got out of the shower. You know that moment where you let go of the thing you're trying to do, and things sort of percolate that I that a visual will come to me, and I'll start sketching. I use mechanical pencils on eight and a half by eleven white pieces of paper, and I make all these wild documents and I send pictures of them to people I collaborate with and we go back and forth. And then I turn them into visuals that get revised through conversations with people, through writings and through talks. But I find it a, 
uh, highly effective way for me to make sense of things. And I've, I've found, fortunately, for my livelihood, it's also um, a highly effective way for people to receive information and sort of digest. Because there's just a tremendous amount of information coming at us right now that we have to make sense of with it, you know, shifting tectonic, tectonic shifts taking place beneath us. And, and, and I think it becomes a little bit of a, a North Star and a life raft for people. Well, I'm sure it's been instrumental in, uh, in, in your message spreading uh, as effectively as it has. And we'll definitely be sure to include at least a couple exa- examples of your visuals in the, the show notes for this episode. And, and we'll also obviously link to your articles, which are, which are full of those visuals. And I strongly, strongly recommend uh, that people take a look at those. Now, be, before we wrap up uh, today, it's been a fantastic conversation. I feel like we could go, go on for, for quite a while, but uh, uh, to, I'll, I'll spare our listeners uh, that um, and just ask you the, the one um, final question that we like to ask all guests, and that is, for yourself, you know, what is one of the most powerful learning experiences that you've been involved in as an adult since finishing your formal education? Sure. I think sometimes the most powerful types of learning are also the most painful. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably true for me. I, ha- I have two and they're connected and I think they are um, how I view the future. One, um, I was about 25 and I was at a meeting and uh, an individual I should drop a note to tonight because I don't think he knows how much uh, it meant to me, turned to me at the end of the meeting and he said, you're really bright. You've got a lot of uh, great ideas, but you have absolutely no idea when people are listening to you. <laughs> and I thought, whoa. And it took me from telling my story to realizing that most of communication is listening and paying attention to what the other person cares about. Wow. So that becomes the beginning of any conversation I have with people, whether it be a keynote speech or a, or a talk or advising um, uh, in a leader, is what, what are they struggling with? What do they care about? And how can I think about their problems as opposed to whatever it is I think is important to express? Um, that was, that's been really instrumental. And that was about 20 some odd years ago. The other was, um, I lost a job and I think, um, I have since run into people, one, one person in t- individual in particular, who I also should drop a note to, who said to me once, I have trouble working with anybody who has never been fired. And there's something about losing a job that tells you no matter how special you think you are, no matter what schools you went to and professional experiences you had, because up until that point, I had gotten into every school I wanted to go to, been the number one performer in every company I had worked at. I lost my job and I lost my job because I was arrogant. When Mm. I looked on it, I was not really understanding the organization. I was only thinking about myself and maintaining this sense of identity I thought I deserved. And since then, those two pieces, so I look at every interaction as what do they care about? And am I adding value to whatever this situation is for their needs? And it's a real shift from me to the other person. And I think those two pieces of learning, painful as they were, I'm really lucky they happened when I was younger because I've met so many people who I realize have not had those experiences yet and may need to. Um, But they, they were really beneficial for me. Definitely, definitely valuable lessons to learn, and ones ones I'm trying to to continue learning every day. And I and I do appreciate because when you when we were talking before we recorded, before we turned it on, turned on the the recording, you did ask, um, you know, what what, what should I address? What what uh, is going to be meaningful to the listeners of Leading Learning? And uh, not not every podcast guest does that. In fact, most don't do that. So I, I really appreciated that. Well, Heather, thanks so much. This has been a, a fantastic conversation. Appreciate you making the time. 
if listeners want to know more about you and, and the work you're doing, wh- where are the best places for them to go? Um, I have a couple websites. It's my name, heathermcgowan.com. I also have uh, another website called Future is Learning. And uh, through both of those, you can see um, I do a lot of keynotes, uh, keynote talks, which are a blast for me. And I do consulting and writing, and you can find all that there. And also my LinkedIn profile, which is open. So if you listen to this and you want to talk to me about something, just drop me a note and say, hey, I heard you. And I wanted to ask you a question about something. So I try to engage in open dialogue with as many people as I can. Well, fantastic. And I know we do have a lot of listeners who hire keynoters. And I will tell you, uh, definitely consider Heather for that. I've watched videos of her talking. And you can tell from from this interview that she is incredibly sharp and somebody who will be very engaging for your audience. So Heather, thanks so much for coming on to Leading Learning. Thank you so much. That wraps up our interview with Heather McGowan. To get show notes for this episode, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 130. This includes a link to get the 10 critical shifts in the market for lifelong learning resource that we highlighted at the beginning of this episode. And you'll also find examples of Heather McGowan's visuals and a video of Heather talking more about some of the key ideas that came up during the interview. While you're there at the show notes, you'll also see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And as always, if you're getting value out of what you hear here, we would be really, truly grateful if you would subscribe. We'd also be grateful if you would take just a minute to give us a rating and review on iTunes. To do that, go to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes. We really appreciate the ratings and reviews, and those reviews and ratings also help others interested in leading learning find this podcast. And we'd be grateful if you'd take a minute to visit the sponsor for this quarter, Review My LMS. Salise and I put a lot of work into producing and delivering the Leading Learning Podcast, and one of the key reasons we're able to do that is because we're able to generate revenue through other sources like Review My LMS. So please visit ReviewMyLMS.com, and if you can, contribute a review to help others find the right platform for their needs. And our final request of you, please tell others about the podcast. You can send out a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share, or if tweeting isn't your thing, you can pick another social network of your preference and spread the good word that way. So thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. <laughs>